in the Book of Occasional Services uh, in the Advent Service of Lessons uh, and Carols, there is a rubric. A rubric is one of those little italicized directions that you see in the prayer book. And uh, you know some clergy don't even read the rubrics and do stuff that make your hair stand on end. However, there is a rubric at the end of the service that says a sermon is not traditionally part of the Advent service of Lessons and Carols. But I take that rubric to be permissive rather than restrictive, and it is merely a suggestion. So that's why I decided to preach a sermon at the Advent service of Lessons and Carols. This is uh, the third Sunday of Advent, and it, at St. Luke's we have introduced over uh, several years ago uh, the wearing of rose-colored vestments on this Sunday. It's a liturgical affectation, and it is an affirmation of my belief that uh, David Lloyd George, when he spoke to the Baptist Union in England in 1899, said, uh, ritualism is a system of salvation by haberdashery. <laughs> and so we have followed this assiduously during my tenure at St. Luke's Church. So there, there it is. It's also, I say this every year, a time when certainly most of the clergy at St. Luke's can wear liturgical vestments in a color that suits their social and political outlook. <laughs> So this Sunday is called Rose Sunday because it is a, the tone and the tradition with a capital T is normally lighter than in the rest of the Advent Sundays and this is true on the fourth Sunday of Lent. This is called Gaudete Sunday in the old rite in, in Latin. It means rejoice. And so there's been a lot of rejoice in the readings and in the epistle that we didn't read at this liturgy uh, it speaks about rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. So this is a time when we sort of take the foot off the gas pedal and uh, think in more reflective terms about the seasons. So I'm going to speak very briefly about not all the readings, but to sort of lump them together and then to focus on the gospel and to speak to you about how Episcopalians understand the place and the role of Mary in the divine economy and how we might understand what that means. Uh, let me say, too, that during Advent there are four themes that are important and come up almost every Sunday. And they are repentance, hope, expectation, and joy. Repentance, turning your life around and looking at it in a different direction. In the New Testament, there are two words that are used in the original language for repentance. One has to do, the most commonly one, with the interior, emotional, mental, and spiritual states that every person has and what kind of resolve or affirmation they wish to make about moving in a different direction. And the other word that is used has to do with the same thing except added to that resolve is how you put this in your hands. 
What do you do about it in terms of going into action? How do you understand that it might affect uh, you in that sense? So when we speak of hope, we understand that maybe as honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. You know, hopefulness is something that we cooperate with, and we uh, cooperate with God's purposes for us, and we believe that when we do that, we can expect that there'll be a positive outcome ultimately. Expectation has to do with allowing the full force and effect of your imaginative powers to work on the way in which you look at your life. What does it mean to use your imagination? We live in a part of the country where a lot of people for a lot of years have used their imaginations with extreme effectiveness. Although you've heard my bias about that is, is that sometimes not enough credit is given to serendipity. But imagination is an important thing to be able to cultivate. It's not easy. I don't think of myself as a particularly imaginative person. And I'm always awed when I meet, meet people who have a capacity to look at something and to see it in its completeness and in its maturity. And finally, joy is the affirmation by Christian people that the conundrums, the uncertainties, the ambiguities of life can and will come into surer and clearer focus if we participate with them as we live. All of this is about how we are part of this great divine economy. So in the reading from Genesis, we have one of the stories of creation. George Tavard, a Roman Catholic priest, 30, 40 years ago now, wrote a book I had to read in seminary called Woman and Christian Tradition. And he did an exhaustive study of, of the creation stories in Genesis and went into the original languages and the languages that precede Hebrew and so and so and so and so. And if you read this, you will see in the original language that when Adam sees Eve, he recognizes his completion. And following on that, George Tavard said, it would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed who would tempt the weakest link in the chain. <laughs> Pretty good. But what is in this passage, and will be again in the reading from the Gospel, is about how it is affects the idea of the necessity of Christian obedience. How do you turn in a direction away from the things that are keeping you from being centered in God? How does that process happen? Most of us don't like to think of the word obedience because it sounds kind of oppressive, doesn't it? At least in a, in a culture where I is the most important thing and not we. So maybe it, to soften it a little bit, instead of using the word obedience, we might use compliant. You know, all of us have to do stuff in order to be able to become happy, healthy, and well. And we need to be obedient to it. And my experience as a pastor is that many people will be extremely obedient to things that will make them uh, smarter, handsomer, richer, more bulletproof 
than they were before. Would you still work out if you knew that it had absolutely no effect on how you look? That it might be good for your inside, your health, but you still look the same. Would you do it? So in the readings from the Hebrew Bible that follow the creation story are all about joyfulness, all about the possibility of hope, all about the way in which we understand the future of God's presence and the transformative nature of God in the world with the cooperation of the people. So, just to pick one out, we read today from Zechariah. It's the only the second time in the whole of the lectionary that we read from the prophet Zechariah. We read it again in, or can, in Holy Week at the Great Vigil of Easter. Zechariah is the great, other than Jeremiah, the great painter of the blue picture. Well, so are a lot of the prophets of Israel, the great painter of the... Um, un, when I went to seminary uh, in ancient of days, all of us had to pass a Bible content exam. Okay? So we were examined by the Old Testament guys, we were examined by the New Testament teachers, and it was done in a variety of ways. One was a real test where you needed to know the stuff. And another one were these pop quizzes they would give you from time to time in the class. And Father Hunt, uh, our Old Testament professor, uh, one day had a pop quiz in class, and he said, David, what did Amos mean, the prophet Amos, when he spoke of the day of the Lord? I'm mentioning this because... Zechariah today is talking about the day of the Lord. So I threw my head back. I didn't have a clue what it what. <laughs> so I threw my head back and he said, Amos means that all of us should look forward to the day of the Lord where we will experience the transformation that the, that the future Christians saw as the great possibility foretold in the Hebrew scriptures. He said, no. <laughs> that is not what the day of the Lord said. The day of the Lord is a day you do not want to have come. And what does Zechariah say? The day of the Lord is a day of great darkness and tribulation. And you and I in our behavior and our cooperation wish that we can forestall or perhaps prevent the day of the Lord. You don't want it. So you need to read carefully. And Zechariah is holding out hope and promise and the, the occasion for rejoicing. That it's possible to do that. So we move to the reading from the Gospel where we have the Annunciation. And Mother Morrison read to you the whole, we could, we've abbreviated it, but she read to you the whole section where they come and visit Elizabeth who has John the Baptist. So she goes to her cousin and Elizabeth greets her. When I was just about ready to go to seminary at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, 
I was standing at the door shaking hands with the rector, Father, Fa Father Wilder, Leslie Wilder, and somebody came out and said, Father, Father Wilder, don't you think that saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to Rome? And he said, no, Edna, I don't think it's getting dangerously close to Rome. I think it's getting dangerously close to the gospel according to St. Luke. <laughs> so we have it in here today, don't we? In sort of a form. But I thought it might be important, if you'll bear with me, to read to you uh, about how Anglican Christians have thought about Mary. So we need to face the reality, but also the possibility in this regard. And I'm reading to you from Edward Norman's uh, An Anglican Catechism that he published in 2001. So uh, bear with me. It is possible, but not realistic, to contend that the Church of England is, by negative deduction, not hostile to Marian devotions on the grounds that there have been no authoritative retractions of those decrees of the early councils of the Universal Church which originally sanctioned them. But the Church of England does not have the constitutional means of making any such pronouncements, so the matter remains indecisively open, and attitudes to the place of the Virgin differ according to styles of churchmanship and spiritual psychology. There can be no doubt, for it is a matter of historical record, that the Church of England has in practice conducted its liturgical development and its theological exegesis as if the Virgin has no place in the scheme of salvation beyond that of being the human mother of the Lord. Paradoxically, however, the modern church has decided in its liturgical calendar to choose the day in August which is universally recognized as the Feast of the Assumption as a special Feast of Mary. It is surely disingenuous to suppose that the selection of this day was unassociated with the doctrine of the Assumption or that Marian devotions would not thereby be encouraged. Perhaps the question is best regarded as one in which Anglican opinion is in transition. So as Father Hunt says, you can do what you want about this if you want. Okay? I know Episcopalians who have a very deep and abiding devotion and relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary, with Mary as the, the God-bearer, the mother of God, and through the processes of God at work, she is the source of the Savior's humanity. That's no small thing. No small thing. So this reading goes on, and we hear the Magnificat, which we use at Evensong and in other places in our liturgy. And you need to reread it. I'm not going to do it now, but to hear that put in the mouth of Mary from Luke a great proclamation about the necessity of social justice and equity. The lowly have been brought down from their thrones. The humble and the meek have been exalted. In Luke's Gospel, our patron, we hear more about the necessity for economic and social justice, about the centrality and importance of healing, 
than in any other gospel writer. And you see here early on in Luke's gospel an affirmation of that reality. How do we understand our place and our role uh, in this whole business of the divine economy? So this week rejoice in God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Remember that these things call for a response to the divine initiative. And that part of this holy season is to know that your spiritual advancement is a function of your willingness to turn away from what is hindering your obedience and turn towards God's plan for you. Amen.